What up? This is Dart Adams. This is the fourth episode of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, well, today I'm just going to start with back on May 3rd. Um, Ev of Up North Trips uh, was upset because I critiqued him listing May 3rd as being the date of the 25th anniversary of the release of Wu-Tang Clan's single Protect Your Neck and Method Man. Um, it's weird to me because May 3rd isn't the 25th anniversary. It is if you're in Europe and the UK because their release dates are a day ahead of ours. The release date was May 4th, 1993. I know this because on May 4th, 1993, I went to the store with my brother and my friends and I bought the following cassettes. Run DMC, Down With The King. Then I bought Master Ace Incorporated Slaughterhouse. Another tape came out that day, which I didn't know until later. That was um, The Coos Kill My Landlord. I didn't buy the tape. Um, what happened was The Coos first single, Not Yet Free, the video was playing on BET. It, you know, got a little buzz or whatever. It wasn't really big. Um, I remember seeing the, the ad in the source. I still have the same source that I either bought or stole. I believe I stole it. I'm not sure I bought it. I think I bought the next one. Um, but, you know, it wasn't until their next single, Dig It, came out. And the next single, Dig It, I remember seeing the video on um, Rap City and me liking it. And eventually it started building up whatever buzz and people started playing it. And then people started seeking out the album. So you, we need to remember that not everybody bought every album on the day it came out. Buying albums on the Tuesday that came out weren't, wasn't really a thing that happened like we like to make it seem like it did after the fact. Especially in the early 90s. It wasn't until the later 90s where people started getting heavy into the whole billboard thing and and being high on the charts and everything. It was more in the Jiggy era where everybody felt the need to go, like I say, 97, 98, where everybody really felt the need to go out and buy an album the Tuesday it dropped en masse. Um, in the 90s, we bought the tape usually when we got money. The reason why I remember buying tapes on the Tuesday they dropped was because I remember being around the store thinking the tape was going to come out and asking when it was going to come out. And the people at the store telling us the date and us going to buy it specifically, it was an economic reason. We bought tapes a lot on the day they came out because we wanted to be guaranteed to get it and because it was going to drop at the sale price. If you were late buying a tape... The penalty you incurred is having to spend two to three more dollars for it. Back in the days of Tower Records, the place that really sold tapes on sale, like I think it was them and Newberry Comics, but we went to Tower Records more because Tower Records had more stuff going on. There were more girls there, blah, blah, blah. Um, so a sale tape at Tower Records would cost you either $6.99 or $7.99. Now, I used to buy tapes from the Skippy Whites down the street from me on Mass Ave back in the day, and they would be trying to sell tapes for $8.99, $9.99, which is ultimately what drove my brother to go to um 
Tower Records in the first place, which is what made it a thing for me to go. And also, um, back in the days, um, the man we know was Cool Jesus now was in a group called um, the neighborhood group TDS Mob. He worked at Tower Records with the other two dudes that um, end up being the producers for TDS Mob. But like they were from the neighborhood, and so it's like how we knew back in the days you used to go to Tower Records. They used to take your backpack at the front. They used to do a bag check. They changed that later on. Yeah, this is the late '80s. So, um, but back to the whole thing with Ev. He got upset because I said the release date was wrong, and he felt like I was trying to show him up. When the fact of the matter is that he wasn't the first person who did that. There were two other people on the timeline who erroneously reported that May, th- May 3rd was the 25th anniversary of Wu-Tang Clan's first single coming out. And I told them, I was like, actually, no, it's not because it's May 4th. I know this for a fact. I have a cassette tape that I got from the RS- RCA BMG um, club as a promo that specifically has... Um, the Protect Your Neck video and the Method Man video, and we got it the first week of May because the single was going to drop on May 4th. So, I mean, this is something I remember. And also, you got to remember I my memory, how, what my memory is. And he, I guess Ev got pissed off because he feels like every time I correct him, which is, to be fair quite a lot uh he feels like i'm showing him up or i should be nicer about it or dm him and the fact of the matter is if i dm everybody about how wrong they are or off they are about dates i'm be dm people forever and the thing is that after a while it just gets old because all you have to do is research Why do I have to spare everybody's feelings when all they had to do was their jobs? I don't understand that. So how am I the bad guy? Because I'm not nicer about it or poor political about it. If you actually drive viewers to your site or you get ad revenue or whatever from driving people to your driving people to your site or whatever, then wouldn't it behoove you to be as accurate as possible and to double check your sources and everything else why is it always on me i don't get any money from this i do this for the sake of accuracy because i care about the culture if you care about the culture too then why would you be mad at me for wanting what you do to be accurate or if you cared about accuracy more than you cared about you know just being able to get views or RTs, and then you would go to people who are historians and say, all right, I need your help or I'm going to enlist you in what I do. What things should I highlight? What events should I focus on? What should I mix in to my content? Because what happens is everybody right now is doing the lazy thing and they're doing birthdays instead of anniversaries. So... May 3rd, 17 years ago, May 3rd, nine years ago, this TV show came out 13 years ago, 
This thing happened 27 years ago. That's easy. The thing to do is to focus on key events that happen in the culture that are of cultural significance and significance period in the timeline. And then you do those things. You highlight those things on their 5th, 10th, 15th, 20th, 25th, 30th, 35th. We're talking hip hop culture. So 40th. Going up the 45th. 50th anniversary. Because the very, 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 very beginnings of everything. I say you go back. The, the first year might be 67, 68. So we'll stop at 50th, right? And yes, there are things that happened in 1968 that affected the timeline going forward before we get to 1973. August 11, 1973. Totally did. You should know that. Well, actually, you should know. Maybe I know that. Whatever. But it bothers me that I become the guy that's like, I'm being the jackass here, or I'm showing somebody up, or you feel bad. Like, if you do your job, I have nothing to critique. And here's the thing. It's a two-way street. If you're over there doing your thing and you're highlighting hip-hop culture and, and dates and everything, then let's go back and let's think, how many times has Ev or anybody else in that space hit me and been like, yo, you got the date wrong? Let's think. How many times has this happened? Yo, Dart, that date's off. Or is it because I that doesn't happen because I don't sleep and I worry about these things to the point where I'm so focused on these things to the point where I research, check, double check and triple check these things to make sure before I go forward with something that this is the date. And if I have something that I think is the date and it could be wrong, I walk everybody through it either on Twitter or when I write a piece and tell them about it. Like uh, the piece I did, something just ain't right. When I talked about the issues that I went through researching and trying to find the actual release date for Keith Sweat's um, first album and how how much trouble I was going through trying to find real records for the ascent of the album from its release date when it was on Ventertainment Electra coming up through 1987 through 1988 and how many and how many weeks it took for me f took for it to enter the charts and other albums around that time when I discovered that there was a dearth of information about certain records especially in black music I did a whole piece about it because this is what I do so for somebody to be upset that I didn't uh pull them to the side and point out what they got wrong in a nice manner. It's a two-way street. You can show me up when I get something wrong. But how come you can't? You know, it's like a perfect example. I don't know how many of you are even interested in fighting games, but it's like if you play a fighting game and somebody picks a character that's super hard and super technical and you pick a character that's an original character that, that people basically know, but you've mastered. And you get your ass kicked by that person using that technical character. Can you get mad at them because they spent that man hours and the time mastering that character? And you got your ass kicked by them? No. 
if you spent the time, if you did the work, if you did the research, if you did, if you practiced, then you shouldn't have anything to complain about. That person did their job. You didn't. That's all there is to it. So, um, another thing I want to talk about today, because um, I'm through with that. I really don't want to talk about any of the issues that everybody's been writing um, think pieces about. I don't want to talk about Childish Gambino or Kanye or the fucking Met Gala or anything, any of that. But um, one thing that I really want to discuss is um, the importance of liner notes. The importance of liner notes and credits, album credits especially. Um, especially on me. Especially on kids that grew up with um, hip-hop. And to me, it's a... Um, it's something that evolved. I first got into liner notes. Well, also, I started reading when I was two. So, again, I've told, I think I've said this last podcast. So, I think when I was like two and a half, 30 months, I started reading. And when I started reading, I started memorizing pretty much everything that I read. So, I became a voracious reader. And one of the first things I read, I went to my parents' record collections. And one of the things I picked up that always had really interesting and long liner notes. And of course, anybody who grew up as a kid who actually read like the cereal boxes and like can remember all the ingredients. One of the first things I read really were um jazz cause jazz albums. Because jazz albums always had liner notes either written by somebody from Downbeat or some other magazine, record report, you know, cash box, something. Um Rolling Stone. So I would always read these records that had liner notes. And the thing about jazz records especially is if you remember jazz, well, if you're familiar with jazz records, jazz records, if it's a trio, if it's a quartet, you know, quintet, what have you, or you have side players, there's always somebody else who played or had a solo or did drum or played drums or did something aside from the person who the album is credited to. And from there, what happens is you end up in what I like to call the musical K hole because everybody who played on that album, you end up going through their entire catalog too. So you introduce to this artist, then you see who they play with, then you introduce to them and so on and so on and so forth. And this is really doing a number on your um, your musical knowledge. And it's widening your knowledge base. So a similar thing would happen with uh, rap tapes. And we have to remember that while rap tapes really started coming out, they in 84, they came out sparingly. So 84, 85, there are very few rap tapes. 86 is the first year we can say that you can list uh, top 10 rap tapes. 87 is the first year where you can list the top 10 rap tapes and you can argue about them. 1988 is the first year you can list the top 20 rap tapes and argue about them. You could list the top 20 rap tapes in 1987, but... Uh, you know, there would be some dispute if as to what top 20 it is, but there'd be even more of a dispute in 1988 because there were just more albums and higher quality albums made by 1989 you know it's a whole nother animal 
by the time we get to 88, 89, it's clear that we're going to need specialized journalism to cover this genre of music. Similar things happened with, um, I'll say, similar things happened with uh, gaming. Gaming journalism was pretty much relegated to uh, home computing. You know, not even the arcade. There were very few arcade, uh, very few magazines actually even covered the arcade. And if it did, it would cover like arcade games with like coin op stuff, like pinball machines and shit like that. Like Replay Magazine is probably the oldest uh, coin op magazine in existence and it really focused a lot more on like pinball than it did the arcade which is ridiculous when you think that like 1987 is the year that Street Fighter came out and like Shinobi and all that other stuff and Double Dragon but it wasn't until summer 1988 where video game journalism really exploded and who really kicked everything off was Nintendo when they created Nintendo Power. Once everybody saw Nintendo Power and people subscribing to Nintendo Power, then, you know, the gaming industry was like, well, we're going to need a magazine to cover all these arcade games and home console games. And bam, just like in hip hop or just like in rap, you know, we need to have specialized journalism to cover this by people that understand it, people that live it. People that have been listening to the genre for a decade now. And that's where like the source comes up. And then we get Rat Pages. The source moves to New York in 1990. Rat Pages um, opens up in California. And by the time we get to 1992, you know, we start having other magazines, independent rap magazines pop up, you know, we had, we had some rap publications sparingly before the source, but the source is really the spark that really lit everything up. Now, why I talk about that is because I feel like the ex- music, music journalism into rap, going into rap, really needing a specialized space of journalists to me goes hand in hand with liner notes especially in rap tapes like perfect example um if i pick up the cactus cassette i'm opening the cactus cassette now i remember this cassette and i open it up i see all the shout outs The shout-outs listed, produced by Prime Minister Pete Nice for RAF Productions, produced by Sam Sever for Sam Man Productions, and Prime Minister Pete Nice for RAF Productions, you know, produced by Prime Minister Pete Nice for RAF Productions, produced by Prince Paul, co-produced by Third Base, MC Search, and Pete Nice for RAF Productions. You see who produced it where. Recorded and mixed at Island Media Studios, West Babylon, New York. Recorded and mixed at Chun King Studios, New York, New York. So I'm learning about these studios. Chun King's House of Metal. I'm learning who these engineers are. I'm learning who these producers are. Um, later on, because it's not listed in this one, you get to see uh, things like ASCAP company names. You get to see names of uh, production companies. 
you know? Like, you get to see things like the names of the A&Rs. You memorize the shout-outs. Like, you look at things and see, like, Mr. Puffy McScruffy, produced by Hank Shockley and Eric Vietnam Sadler. You know, you start realizing that, yo, these dudes produce outside of Public Enemy. And then you see the same thing when you open up, um, I think some of the most sparse uh, liner notes are probably uh, Slick Rick's album, uh, The Adventures of Slick Rick. There's pretty much nothing there. And another thing I like to note about this tape is that there's no listing for samples because, again, uh, the sample listings didn't happen until after the case happened with um, Bismarcky, where he got sued. And then, like, after that, going into 1992, they figured out that, like, you had to list samples in your cassettes and you had to clear everything. But what's funny is that two of the biggest tapes that people bought because they were hoping to see the sample sources were uh, Gangstar, Daily Operation, and Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth's Mecca and the Soul Brother. When you went to those liner notes, you did not see any samples listed. And you were just like, what? And what's funny is that there were tapes after that where you would hear similar samples or some of the same samples being used on either one of those tapes. And you would go straight to that song looking because, wow, I'm finally going to find out what that sample is. And and smart and the people were smart enough to not list it. Uh, this example happens in um, Shades of Lingo's album. Uh, there's a song that's produced by Diamond D, Think I Give a Fuck. The horns. Then it goes. And those are the horns from Too Deep. And you're like, oh shit, I'm about to find out what these horns are from. When you go look, every other sample on that song is listed by Diamond D, except for the horns. The same horns that want Too Deep. Because he did not reveal the source of the sample the premiere used of course i don't think you if you don't know this already i feel like um dj premiere was is kind of like unofficial ditc anyway like he was one of the producers on um one of the seminal ditc albums as far as i'm concerned uh lord finesse and mike smooth's funky technician from 1990 so he didn't list it now, when you go to albums like EPMD's uh, Business as Usual, you get to see things like Parrick and Music, which is Parrick and Erish, um, Eric and Parrish. Um, you get to understand that like everything says produced by EPMD. And back then, just like when things would say produced by um, uh, A Tribe Called Quest, we didn't really question, at least early on, we didn't really question who actually produced what song. We figured everybody, it was like, they do in the bomb squad at least that's what they explained what they do with the bomb squad it would be like a thing where it was everybody contributed to the production like it was an assembly an assembly line uh later on we discovered that that wasn't the case 
One person could have produced it. Somebody could have added something to it. But one person could have just produced the beat and everybody got credited as a Tribe Called Quest. Just like if it was produced by EPMD, you figured Eric and Parrish would make beats together like what the Neptunes did later. And it turns out that sometimes Eric made the beat, Parrish made the beat. And regardless of who made the beat, it would end up being listed as EPMD. But later on, when Parrish had Schumer management, you know, when Parrish had, you know, everything else, that he, everything else that he built, um, uh, GMC generating mad cash. Um, it turns out that like the hit squad, it turns out that Parrish was getting money from everything because he was the person behind the business. So it became a sore spot for E-Double when he realized that he could produce something and Parrish would get half the credit. Already, when Parrish was already getting money from the acts when they went platinum, a double platinum, a gold. And he was also getting money from when they toured or did shows because he owned the management company. And he also was getting money off the top because he was executive producing all the albums. You know, so everything goes back to liner notes and credits. And again, this is before you start seeing the credits in like who produced what or who sampled what. Now, when we open up the line of notes for which one is this? This is Midnight Marauders. So a Tribe Called Quest, Midnight Marauders. We open this one up. And it, of course, the type is mad small. It doesn't bother me any. You see recorded and mixed by Bob Power and the Tribe Called Quest. Recorded and mixed by Tim Lathan. Eight Million Stories produced by Skeff Anselm for Skeffington Productions. Keep It Rolling. Produced by and featuring Large Professor for Paul C. Productions. Additional Engineering, Tim Lathan. Then you start seeing all the names of these engineers. Mixed at Battery Studios, recorded at Battery Studios, Platinum Island, Master Mix, and Sorcerer Sound. Mastered by Tim Coyne at the Hit Factory NYC. Now, every time you see a new studio, Green Street Studios, all these studios became iconic because we associated them with the albums that were recorded, that were recorded there. And of course, in this line, these line of notes, it says free Slick Rick, free Mike Tyson and bring back EPMD. And then you have like thanks from a tribe called Quest from the Ab, Shaw's Joints, Fife Dog. Fife Dog said peace to Kenny Anderson, free Slick Rick, free Mike Tyson, and bring back EPMD. Of course he did. That would be the person to say that. But like you see, keep it rolling. Contains a sample from. And what happens is people would go out and they would look for these records. And when they couldn't find these records, they would buy any records by whoever the jazz artist is. And again, it would send them down a musical K-hole because it would create it would be more music discovery. So music discovery was largely sparked by reading rap album liner notes, just the way it was when I read jazz album liner notes. And you have to remember that in the era of the new diggers which was created by these cassette liner notes, 
we went back to listening to even more jazz, which kind of um, the whole jazz rap era or the whole jazz era exploded because it got us into music that was older. You know, how many people went looking for the Blue Gorilla by Kylon Gain after they heard it being used by um, KMD? Or um, Constipated Monkeys. We look at De La Soul's Balloon Mind State. I open this one up. Yeah, it dropped. It hit the floor. I'm nice doing this one-handed. Go eye patch, pub, T girl music, Daisy Age, Prince Paul, music administered by MCA Music, BMI, written by K Mercer, who's Kelvin Mercer, D Jolicure, um, V Mason, Vaughn Mason, P Houston, Paul Houston, that's Prince Paul. So, like, we learned all these things about the artist. K Mushida, you know who that is, you know? You knew that, like, uh, schematics music, you knew who that was. Get a load off Fatso, you know, you knew that was Chub Rock. Uh, works of Mart, you knew that was DJ Premier. You know, then you see like samples. Nothing is the same. Produced by Grand Funk Railroad of Capitol Records Incorporated. Intimate connection performed by Clear, courtesy of Atlantic Recording Group, by arrangement with Warner Special Products. And Clear Records just got like uh, when people discovered Clear, they just went through every Clear record you could imagine. People Make the World Go Round by Milk Jackson, courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment, King Records Limited. Then you look down here and you have Harlem Hendo, published by Five Sisters Music, performed by Al Hurt, under license from RCA Records, label of BMG Music. Al Hurt. People started looking for Al Hurt. Hot Dog Lou Donaldson. A lot of people realized that, yo... I have Lou Donaldson records. You know, they started going through them. I call my baby Pussycat performed by Parliament. Parliament had been raided. You know, people had been running through them since I say 92, right when like G-Funk, the G-Funk ever hit knocked um hit and um I think Redman really made people really delve deeper into the funk. And I think people started realizing that, yo, we got to go deeper because I call my baby Pussycat. That's not a song that gets sampled a lot. And, you know, there were just a lot of albums and a lot of tapes, you know, the people that just introduced you to more stuff. And then if you go into underground rap, it gets even deeper. So the era that I did a piece called um, The New Diggers, 1992 to 1994. And it really focused on the post uh, liner notes era when we had all these sample sources and everything in liner notes and what it really kicked off and how it like bled into the era of like interpolated music and bands because due to sample clearance issues, you had to replay a lot of stuff and that got a lot of people who played instruments back into the game. You know, from 92 to 94, it kind of helped the roots um, because we're almost coming up on the um, 
yeah, we're almost coming up on the 25th anniversary of The Roots releasing their first album. It's funny because if not a lot of people outside of the the Eastern Seaboard really heard The Roots' first album like that. It's not like it had um, national distribution. I wrote that, and, and it's another issue that I have. A lot of cats act super cool. Like, acting too cool is ahistorical in rap. Let me just tell you right now. Because any motherfucker that tells you that they had The Roots' first album before they had Do You Want More? If they weren't in Philly, New Jersey, or Delaware at the time, chances are they full of shit. I heard two songs off the Roots' first album before I heard Distortion Aesthetic. One of them was called Good Music, and I think the other one was um I think the other one was a Say What Man. I think the other one was a Say What Man. I actually wrote about this. I wrote about a, I wrote this primer to the Roots, and in it I told. And what happens is, after the fact, everybody talks about albums like. And also, the album release date is listed as May 19th, when the release date would have been the 18th. So you figure that out. But um, people act so fucking cool with this shit, like they were down from day one, when the fact of the matter is, nobody really was. It's just like how people celebrate um, Eminem's first album. Today, Eminem's first album, Infinite, came out. Nobody bought it. He, there were only like 200 fucking cassettes made or some shit like that. No one had it. So why are we celebrating it like it was some momentous occasion in the culture when it wasn't until later that he even put out an album that had reach? So like while we can say, yes, the album first came out, but I don't want to see people in the mentions talking about they had the Roots first first um first album. I didn't buy the Roots first CD until like years later. Matter of fact, I don't think I bought a copy of the Roots first album until after I'd already had their second um, Illadelph Half-Life or third technically until I, I didn't buy um, Organics until I had Illadelph Half-Life because I believe that's when Cargo Cargo um, Recordings who was like, I think they're based in Chicago Cargo used to do shit for um, E.C. Illa on Ill, I remember him, him being on Cargo I think that's when they actually started putting out the Organics on CD, and that's when I bought my copy. And then, um, when they put out uh, Things Fall Apart, that people started buying them more, and all of a sudden, everybody's so cool that they were always down from the beginning. I'm like, come on, man, stop fucking lying, stop lying. This is like the same people that claim to have fucking seen like Wild Style. By the time Illmatic came out. Nobody had seen that shit. If you weren't from New York or you didn't know somebody with the cassette, you didn't see it. You couldn't rent the shit in video stores. No one had it. Stop fucking lying. And it's like, again, and it goes back to this thing I was telling you earlier about um buying tapes on the Tuesday that came out. Everybody didn't do that shit. We didn't care. We didn't care. All we wanted to do was get it while it was still on sale. That's the only reason we would buy it early. Other than that, we didn't care. If the album, if the tape would have been $7.99 two weeks later, we would have fucking waited to buy it when we had more money. We would have ate 
Um, so just going through these cassettes. So this is another cassette. The reason I brought this out is because this cassette tape specifically um, annoyed me. I like information. So this cassette tape came out 1990. On the cassette tape, it says, let the rhythm hit him, no Omega, in the ghetto, step back, Eric B made my day, run for cover, untouchables, mahogany, keep him eager to listen, and um, set him straight. Under that, it says, produced by Eric B and rock him. Now, do you know what that means? That means don't expect shit in the liner notes when you open up this cassette, this J card. Bam, it has the album list. You open up the J card, it says at the top, again, produced by Eric B and Rakim, written by Eric Barrier and William Griffin, all lyrics by Rakim, recorded at Powerplay Studio and Libra Digital Sound, Long Island City, New York, and Skip Sailor recording in A&M Studios, Hollywood, California. Engineered by Patrick Adams, Anton Pushansky, salute Anton, there's a re- I think on this tape, the sound drops, and it's because they didn't pay Anton or some shit somebody told me. I think, who, who told me that? Was it J-Zone? Tony A and Tony P in New York and Ralph Sutton and Brian Schubel in Hollywood. Assistant engineers, Laser Mike Rhodes in New York and Randy Wine in, Cal- in Hollywood. Mastered by Carlton Batts at Frankfurt Wayne. That's another one. Frankfurt Wayne Mastering Labs, New York, New York. Art direction and photography, Carol Friedman. Design, Patrick Rokes. Management, Rush Artist Management, Big Rush Logo. Booking information, Kara Lewis. Kara Lewis is our agent. And then it has fan club information. Then you open it up and it says, May you rest in everlasting peace, William Griffin, your son Rakim, and Paul C., Eric B. and Rakim. And then it says, Special thanks to everyone. If you wanted any more information, if you want any more shout outs, you're sh- shit out of luck. That's all you're getting. And that's how I felt when I opened up the... um. The tape for Slick Rick. When I was a kid, I used to love reading the cereal box. There was so much information, riboflavin, like um, something citric acid, you know, all these polysodium glutamates and, and red number five and yellow number 10, whatever the fuck. But like, there's so much to read. Battle Creek, Michigan, you know. All this stuff, all these copyrights and patents, just a whole bunch of stuff to read on that cereal box. There was nothing to read. And Eric B and Rock Hymns let the rhythm hit him. Nothing. Nothing. But nonetheless, it saddens me because if you get an album now in the digital age, there's no connection really to the music other than just downloading it and getting those mp3s and maybe you get a digital booklet and a digital booklet i feel is not the same feel as getting the tape or getting the album getting the vinyl and reading the liner notes of the album notes it's just not the same like i um house shoes had the idea to, um, because of course House Shoes is another record store guy His label Street Corner Music Is named after a record store That he actually used to frequent Then worked at later So he had the idea Of using these Iconic jazz albums And their liner notes And adapting them And he hit me up And he was just like Yo um, my idea is for you to adapt These liner notes And like update them And I'm like oh word and I knew the albums. 
So I, of course, updated them and I used the form, but I actually put in people that we knew and the artist and everything else, but using the same format, you know, using the same skeleton that was written before in those original liner notes. And it was beautiful. And it, the reason he picked me is because we were dudes that grew up with this music, reading the liner notes, and it further pushed our love of the music. And it made us seek this music out. And it also gave us standards. And it gave us bass. So when we listened to music later on, and our taste evolved, we had an idea of what greatness was or what classics are or what standard is going forward. And I feel like a lot of that is missing, especially now. Not to be like the old man talking about how everything sucks now, because again, things are relative. If you grew up watching movies like Basketball, and you think that's great, then are you going to appreciate something that I think is great because I grew up with a different form of what's great? But by that same token, when years go and errors change, things just certainly don't don't always translate. Like, is Caddyshack, is Caddyshack funny to kids now like it was to people then? I don't think so. If I was to play meatballs or porkies for somebody who grew up, uh, who was born in the 90s or the zeros, Jesus, they're going to be like, what is this? It's like I said before, man, Star Wars, everybody loves Star Wars and they're so and they're so like um, nostalgic for Star Wars. Star Wars didn't age well. I remember watching my brother and I were watching Star Wars with the niece and nephew and we were like, yo, this this is boring as shit. Like, this is this movie did not age well. It didn't. Empire Strikes Back still stands the test of time 35 years later, I feel. Uh, or more than 35 years. And when I look at, like, The Return of the Jedi, that's, I feel like it's kind of corny. But everything, you know, is relative. Standards change, man. It's just like the same way where when I watch old James Bond films, I wonder how in the hell was I so entertained by this? When I watch the new Bond films, the Daniel Craig ones, well, most of the Daniel Craig ones, because some of the later ones just got just got ridiculous. They lost their way. But like starting with like Casino Royale, that new direction for Bond. I like that way more than the old Bond films where when Bond would kill somebody, it was like an inconvenience for him. Or it was campy. I fucking hate campy. Another thing. Alright, so the old um, Batman movie. The 1989 Batman movie just doesn't do it for me anymore. I remember being taken to the opening night of the Batman movie. Packed audience. And being in awe of what I saw on the screen. And thinking that Jack Nicholson did a great job as the Joker. (sighs) Fast forward... To the dark night. Now I cannot watch. That Jack Nicholson. Iteration of the Joker. And take it seriously anymore. 
I think I had this um, conversation online with Just Blaze. Then again, Just Blaze likes Ewoks. I can't stand Ewoks. I think the Ewoks is kind of what did it for me. I hate, I hate cute and I hate campy. This is the same reason why, again, this is another conversation I've had online about anime. I, I'm more of a Madhouse fan than anything. So when you look at films like, I can't do Kiki's Delivery Service, can't do it. Um, Totoro, My Neighbor Totoro, can't do that. Mm-mm. So it's just hilarious because like Studio Studio Ghibli, I can't. I think mm, the overwhelming majority of their films I can't do. Some of them I I'm, I I rock with totally, but like they got to be more along the lines of like Princess Mononoke, which again was just a remake of um Nausicaa: The Valley of the Wind. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there's Google, there's YouTube, there's Wikipedia. But yeah, um, basically it is that. But again, like everything doesn't always translate. Like when you look at, I was 13. Was I 13? Yeah, I think I was 13 when um, Critical Beatdown came out. Ultramanic MC's Critical Beatdown. And I don't think I could play that album for like my any 13 year old and have them have the same reaction to it that I did of course I wouldn't expect it either because the world's different everything's different so how we relate to music changes based on times I just don't know if with the way media works and the way information is trans is transmitted and with the 24 hour um, news cycle I really don't know if there's an equivalent to how we interacted with music because I don't think that people have to work as much to get it. I feel, I think that like people just expect to get music in this VOD age. I think just pe- people just like the on-demand era. I think people just like, I want ease of use and I want it to be as easy to get and acquire as possible. I just want to press one button and have it. We had to jump through hoops. We had to do work. And again, as I'm saying this, it sounds like when I was a kid and I would be told these stories about how my elders had to go through all this hell just to go to school and we had to walk in the snow and we didn't have boots. And when we went to school, there were no floors, so we had to use mind power to levitate. And when my mom was young, she used to tell me stories about how a calculator is a crutch. And she had the slide rule, and she was happy to get it. So she had to do math in her head. So she made us do math in her head. So now I can do math in my head like nobody's business. And now I'm in this world where that's just not what people do anymore. Nobody has to memorize phone numbers anymore. I still remember phone numbers from second and third grade from my friends. Like, this is real. I remember my old phone number from my old house. I remember my mom's old work number. 
I remember my dad's number. I remember the number for my friends. I remember the number for pizza places that don't exist anymore. I remember the number for uh, comic book stores that don't exist anymore. I remember this number for the arcade so I could call there and ask if Owen was still sitting in the same chair. And anybody who's out there who knows who Owen is, Owen was the kid who sat in the stool at um, Teddy Bear Arcade. Owen could sit there and play one game on one quarter and 50 cents for hours and hours and hours on end and never die. And never get beaten. If you beat Owen, you were a legend. If Owen was in the first seat and he was playing Street Fighter, if you knocked off Owen in the game of Street Fighter, oh my God, oh my God, if you die, you're a legend. You know what I'm saying? There are a lot of stories like that um, that I remember being a kid growing up in the South End, Lower Roxbury. But is coming dangerously close to the Red Sox playing the Yankees. And I really don't want to miss that. They're playing in New York too. I'm I'm glad they're playing in New York because traffic would be crazy here because I live close to Fenway Park. But yeah, I want to catch this game. Hopefully the Red Sox beat the shit out the Yankees. Because Medias Rojas por Vida. Um, but yeah, that's going to be episode four. I'm not sure when the next episode is going to go up. Uh, more than likely, it's going to happen later on this week. Probably before this weekend. I'll tell you the truth. It's determined. It is basically it's determined on whether or not the Celtics end up closing out the um, Philadelphia 76ers at home. If they win game five, then chances are that the episode will be sooner rather than later. I have to space this out depending on what's going on in sports so my attention isn't, you know, split or I'm not recording an episode after I'm mad or I'm not recording an episode after I'm too up. There's science to this. And people are asking me, how come all the episodes are like 50 minutes? Well, basically, it's because, again, I don't, past 45 minutes, I start realizing I need to shut up. And basically because or anywhere between 45 and 50 minutes is the average episode of a show on Netflix. So, you know, there's science behind this. And I don't do it every week. I kind of space it out uh, more like between every five, six days. Yeah, that's enough science. You get it, one.